This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, everything there now reaches this point in these final few hours of his life. And I want to say a couple of points here because I know some of you may be disappointed in some sense, but there are, our intent this morning is to cover Matthew chapter 27 verses 32 through 54. And, it's a, and there's a lot in there. It's a massive amount of information. So I'm going to be, first of all, I, I want to be upfront and say that I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. There is so much in here with respect to the Old Testament allusions and quotations, and there's so much that is going on with respect to even just some of the phenomenon that Matthew describes later about after the death of Christ that happens, and so much detail that Matthew also provides with respect to people and events and things that are surrounding these final hours of Jesus's life on the cross, and we're just not going to be able to deal with every bit of it, nor be able to uh, even bring in some of the other parallel accounts from the other gospel writers. As much as we would love to do that, as much as I'd love to have time to do that, and some of you may argue and say, well, there is no nursery, so just go ahead and do it, right? Um, but we're going to be still considerate of time and, uh, and not do that this morning. But what I do want us to focus on this morning is exactly what is Matthew's primary point in his accounting of the crucifixion. Because Matthew has really one major driving point that he wants us to be able to see in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this is, and the title of my message is, The Glory of an Obedient Death. Matthew is narrowly focused on what I believe is Jesus' identity as the obedient Son of God. And his title, his identity of being the Son of God is, first of all, what enables him to be obedient to the point of death, even death to the cross, but it also is because he is the Son of God he faces the most fierce and vicious forms of temptation that only the Son of God could ever actually overcome. This is the glory of an obedient death that secures our redemption. So let us read together in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. And we're continuing as Josh beautifully pointed out to us the suffering servant of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we continue Christ's suffering as we move forward in these next verses as well. In verse 32, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. For when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to watch over him there. And above his head, they had put up this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers 
really are two insurrectionists, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those were, there were those who were passing by, and they were hurling abuse at him, wagging or shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also among the scribes and the elders were mocking him and saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself? He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the insurrectionists or the robbers who had been crucified with him, they were also insulting him with the same words. And now from the sixth hour, about noon, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let's just see where Elijah is going to come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake, the things that were happening... They became frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You know, as we reflect on this, you saw probably just in the mere reading of this how often there was the title or the mention of the Son of God. Whether it was used in the form of derision and mockery or finally at the end of a final confession of Jesus' real identity, that is the main point that Matthew wants us to understand. It's what Matthew is most concerned about, that when we finish reading his gospel message, we are unmistaken about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question of Jesus' identity has been a nagging question by Jesus' antagonist from the beginning of his ministry and even his life. When he was on the trial before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, you may remember in Matthew 26, 53, Caiaphas demanded, demanded that Jesus tell them whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we saw there, Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Psalm 110.1 to declare himself to be the anticipated Son of Man spoken by the prophet Daniel and the Son of God anticipated by the psalmist of Psalm 110. You know, one of the passages that is probably my favorite passage in all of the Gospel of Matthew, comes from Matthew chapter 22. And it's a moment where Jesus is just getting berated by, with one question after another by all of these various groups who are opposing him. 
You know, at first he's, he's just getting challenged by the religious leaders, one group after another. First, there was a religious lawyer who was challenging him with questions. Then the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, all of these guys who normally would never be friends together. You, you, you would never find them necessarily, you know, in the same synagogue uh, together, so to speak. They were not friends in, a, in any kind of social or relational level, but all of a sudden, they find themselves having a common enemy and coming together to try to challenge Jesus in his ministry. And so when they couldn't trap him anymore, they were, they were dumbfounded by all of the answers that Jesus had provided to them. And finally, Jesus says, well, now, you know what? It's my turn. I want to now ask you guys a question. And so in Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And then they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus, he said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And I love Matthew's commentary, this in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. (laughs) It was the question that ended all questions. Jesus blistered his opposers with a question that showed that despite all of their religious knowledge, that they could not answer this. They could not answer it because they failed to understand something, that the son of David, the future messianic king from the genealogical line of David, was far more than simply a man and far more than someone who simply shared David's DNA. Matthew has been showing us from the beginning of the gospel exactly who Jesus is. Yes, he is the son of David because he is the future messianic king that is from David's line. We learned that back in the chapter 1, verse 23 of Matthew's gospel when one of the names of the titles that Jesus was given was Emmanuel, God with us. So we automatically know there's something more than just being from the genealogy of David. And even more so, in the very next chapter of Matthew, chapter 2.15, Matthew says that as Jesus comes with Joseph and Mary out of Egypt, he says that this is to fulfill what was spoken in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, that out of Egypt I have called my son. And then, of course, early on in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, the Father declares, this is my son. But even further than that, even the demons in chapter 8, verse 29 of Matthew's gospel, even Jesus has to silence the demons because they were shrieking in fear when they confronted Jesus. He had to silence them and say to them, be silent because they kept crying out, we know who you are, the Holy One, the Son of God. And then, of course, the climax at Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when Peter declares to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very curious, too, about that, that Jesus quickly reminds Peter that flesh and blood didn't make this known to you, but my Father revealed this to you. You know, all of this throughout the gospel and all throughout Jesus' ministry, we have been told this, that he is the Son of God. 
that Jesus occupies a very unique role and a unique relationship with the Father that's unparalleled by anybody else. This is the identity that is so critical both to the success of Jesus' mission and also to the temptation towards his failure in the mission. It is because of his identity as a son of God why there is so much tension in this throughout this gospel. The greatest chance of success that Jesus has is in this mission is specifically because he is the Son of God. And But the depth of his suffering, the ferociousness of the temptations is also because he is the Son of God. And this is what magnifies his obedience and helps us to be able to read a text together like Philippians chapter 2 that magnifies the point of obedience, even obedience to the point of death on a cross. We cannot lose sight of this as we work through the text because the gospel of Matthew is calling us to marvel, to be amazed over the obedience of the Son. So we need to understand this and that what Jesus is referring to also, well, I tell you, let's back up and let's first of all answer this question. What exactly do we mean by Jesus being the Son of God? I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I want to get through the text, but I want to, I, I do think it's worth pointing out here that when Matthew uses the title or we, uh, or we see the title, the Son of God in the New Testament, we need to be able to understand this in primarily two ways. The first one is to understand that Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that He, in His relationship to those that He represents. And I'm going to come back and explain that in just a moment. He's the Son of God in the sense of the relationship to those He represents. And the second part is Jesus is the Son of God because of His unique relationship that He shares with the Father. Now, let me, let me back up and cover the first one. Um, with respect to the relationship of those that he represents. The title of the Son of God is not necessarily unique to Jesus alone. In fact, the title was also shared by the nation of Israel itself, and it was also shared by David's future son. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Moses was told by God that he calls Israel his firstborn son, which helps us to also explain what Hosea meant in Hosea 11:1, 1, that out of Egypt I have called my son. In this text, of course, you know, we reflected on that when I mentioned uh, chapter 2, verse 15 uh, earlier. But Matthew is showing us that Jesus is taking on a representative function, a representative role of representing the nation of Israel. He is now the new Israel. Jesus is now God's son in the sense that Israel was to be God's son by enjoying a unique relationship with the Lord that no other nation could ever boast of being able to have. God is the one who redeemed Israel out of Egyptian slavery. God is the one who fed his people in the wilderness. God is the one who called them his own. God is the one who gave them his law. God is the one who gave them their own land. God is the one who placed in their midst a tabernacle where they, among all the other nations, they alone could enjoy the presence of God. God made them he acted like a father to them and called them his son. And he provided and provided for them and formed a relationship with them that was utterly unique from all the other peoples of the earth. The problem was Israel was not an obedient son. 
Israel was a rebellious son. Israel never could be the son that Jesus was. Jesus, as the obedient son, represents the he now represents Israel. He is the son that Israel never was. He is now the son that Matthew talks about now that is called out of Egypt. He is the son of God. And the kingship of David is also unique with respect to the relationship to God as well. In, the, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the giving of the Davidic covenant is provided here, the Lord declares that God would be a father to David's son and that he would love him with an everlasting covenant love. Jesus is the child in Isaiah chapter 9 that is born where the government will rest upon his shoulders and he will usher in the days of peace. Jesus is the son of Psalm chapter 2 whom the nations are told to worship. Jesus is the son that the Psalm 89 verse 26 tells us. God says, this son, he will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness or my covenant love will, will keep him forever, and my covenant will be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and the throne and his throne as the days of heaven. This is this, so even the David and the Psalms are depicting for us a unique relationship between this son that God, that the son that he had as a king that he has with the father. And so while the nation does enjoy a unique relationship to God and his son, God installs the Davidic king as a representative ruler over the nation. In other words, the nation is God's son, but God places over them a king, establishes a relationship with that king, and he now calls that king his son, who is the representative ruler over the nation of the people. The king is Israel's covenant head. He represents the entirety of the people. And so the Old Testament envisioned a future Davidic king, who would serve in this unique role as being a son as well as a representative ruler over the entire nation who would finally be a king to shepherd the nation in righteousness, which is what was, which is what the, which is what was expected among all of the prophets, as many of them spoke about this, especially Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and the list goes on. So the first aspect of understanding Jesus as the Son of God is knowing his representative function, which helps us to appreciate his death of atonement as a sacrificial lamb. He represents, he represents Israel. He represents humanity. He represents himself now as the new covenant head over all the future redeemed now who believe upon him. His death substitutes our death if we have genuine faith in him. But second of all, Jesus has a, a unique relationship to, uh, um, as the son because he's not just a man, but he is fully divine. As we talked about, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. Also, Jesus discloses this relationship in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He says, look, all things have been committed to, be, to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Jesus' relationship to the Father was exclusive because he is from the Father. In that, he is from the community of that inner Trinitarian relationship. He voluntarily, this is what we need to wrap our minds around, that in this holy communion, this holy Trinitarian communion, the Son voluntarily humiliated himself, took on flesh, and so he could be the obedient son representing Israel and becoming the head of a whole new redeemed race of humanity. A redeemed race, a new humanity who has salvation and a relationship to God through his obedient son. It would be difficult for me to exaggerate the importance of this identity of the Son of God in Matthew's gospel. If we can grasp this and the depth of of its significance, I think we'll be quite overwhelmed with the obedience of Christ to the point of death. We'll understand better how much he actually suffered. And you know, the problem is sometimes when we talk about suffering, the suffering of Jesus, we, we put that particularly in the context of physical suffering. But I'm actually going to argue that the physical suffering was not the worst suffering in this. I think the worst suffering that we have to imagine and understand in what Matthew provides for us is the, is the suffering and temptation that Christ experienced during his resolve to willingly lay down his life in obedience. So let's look at what happens and what Matthew discloses for us. Beginning in verse 32 through 44, the challenge here is this. This is the first challenge. If you are the Son of God. (laughs) You know, the Apostle Paul recites an early church hymn that we read early, uh, we read as a part of our opening of worship earlier, that marvels over the obedience of Jesus, and so should we. And in Philippians 2.8, that being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, in many ways, I used to be very uncomfortable with emphasizing the suffering of Jesus on the cross because, well, in some ways, you have, on one extreme, you have Roman Catholicism that really, uh, to back up their doctrines of penance and other types of things, they would really overemphasize the physical suffering of Jesus and downplaying with respect to his work of atonement. But on the other side, you would have even so-called evangelicals who would almost use the physical suffering of Jesus as a way to morally influence people and saying, oh, you know, see how much Jesus loved you, how much he sacrificed for you. Don't you think you should love him as well? You know, but the, the problem is those kinds of extremes are not in any way what Matthew is focused on. Instead, the problem is we can, you know, we can see the, the wrong aspects of, of dealing with the physical suffering of Jesus, and it does create an imbalance of understanding why Jesus endured what he endured. But we should also marvel over the fact, and this is what I want you really to pay attention to, we need to marvel over the fact that Jesus did everything he did willingly. It was all willing. He did it deliberately. Why? To prove not just that he is the Son of God, but he is the obedient Son of God. Jesus' willing death is what atones for our sin, not the level of his suffering. 
It is not that if Jesus had suffered any less, he wouldn't have been the Son of God or suffered any more than the Son of God. Jesus, Jesus suffered. Jesus' work of atonement was indeed because his suffering was voluntary. His suffering was an act of obedience. That's the reason why his blood is sacrificially atones for our sins. Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us that it was fitting for him, that is the Father, for whom are all, from whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So why is there such an emphasis here that Matthew provides for us on understanding the obedience of the Son? The first one is that there is, Jesus faces temptation significantly in the crucifixion. He faces temptation significantly in the crucifixion. But, and, and, and I want to start here because, one, I, I, just by, by me talking about that we don't want to focus too much on just the physical suffering of Jesus, we can't discount that. The physical suffering of Christ is extremely real and horrific. We learn in, in verse 32 that they recruited a man named, uh, named Simon from Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus. I mean, it makes sense. Jesus had been awake for nearly two days. He'd been, he had suffered abuse by the Sanhedrin the night before. He'd been do, enduring trials by Pilate. He'd been flogged by Roman soldiers. Our Lord has, been, has lost a tremendous amount of blood. He's endured torture, and now he's forced to carry a cross beam on his back that some people estimate could have weighed as much as 150 pounds. He had no energy. He had no energy left in him. And so the Roman soldiers recruited Simon to carry this, this crossbeam on his back outside the city wall to the place called Golgotha, where he would be crucified. There's been many speculations about this Golgotha, where it's at, whether it's the Gordon's Calvary of a hill that's shaped like the face of a skull, or even if it's a hill at all. Most scholars don't believe it was a hill. It, the reason why it was called the place of a skull is because it was the place next to the main road in and out of the city where most, crucifixion, uh, most executions took place. But here, what we, what we need to understand is indeed that there was temptation in many ways for Jesus to not go through the pains of the crucifixion. Crucifixion was horrible. It was an exceedingly cruel death. In fact, it was perfected, even though it may have been begun by the Persians and used by the Greeks and used by other cultures, it was, its instrumentality of torture was perfected by the Romans. Joel Green comments that the act itself damaged no vital organs, nor did it ever result in excessive bleeding. Hence, death came slowly, sometimes after several days, through shock or the painful, pro painful process of, of asphyxiation or suffocating as the muscles used in breathing suffered increased fatigue, end quote. Those who were crucified were taken to this place called Golgotha that I just mentioned outside the city wall. And certainly other ancient cultures practiced it, but the Romans used it as a way to force themselves politically and assert their authority over those of whom they ruled. They meant it to be a form of intimidation by making people publicly see an excruciating death. 
from archaeological evidence back in the 1960s where a usury box was actually discovered. They found the remains of a, uh, of, of a Judean who actually was crucified. And Biblical scholars were able to be able to discern a lot of the practice of crucifixion. We understood first that they, they would strip those who were being crucified completely naked. They would either tie or nail their forearms uh, to the wooden beam that was above them. And then they would take a block of wood. They would take their feet, overlap their feet, put a block of wood in front of it, and drive a nail through both feet all the way to piercing both of their back heel, back of their heels. And later on, they would often break the shins of those who were being crucified just to prevent them from being able to push up so they could breathe. And many times it took hours upon hours to die. And sometimes they were not even taken down from the crosses. Their bodies were left to hang there to rot or for the birds of the air to consume. The Romans used crucifixion as a very cruel tool it was a primary form of torture that was used for those who were considered insurrectionists, those who were considered hardened criminals, and those whom, and they also would sometimes use it as sport just to be able to make sure that nobody else got the idea that they could buck Roman rule. And what is interesting is that the Apostle Paul later will tell us that, that even preaching the gospel and trying to convince people that, that, that our Savior was one who was butchered on a cross was considered a laughable matter. Paul says that preaching the message of the cross is considered foolishness. But yet in this foolish, in this foolishness, in this absolute horrendous and just belittling death, Paul says it was actually the display of the wisdom of God. But remember what I told you. Matthew's emphasis here is on this obedience. And it's interesting because Matthew makes a side comment in verse 34 about his willingness when Jesus was offered a wine mixed with a narcotic. There was a narcotic in that in order to reduce, you know, maybe to create some numbingness or to create, you know, to ease the pain that he was about to endure with the crucifixion. We don't know if the soldiers offered this, probably not, or if it was just women who were on the streets out of sympathy were trying to offer this to him in order to be able to help ease his pain through their crucifixion. But Jesus refused it, Matthew says. It's amazing. He went to the cross with his full senses and his full wits and his mental faculties fully intact. Nothing was diminished. That's what is most impressive about the depth of his obedience. Jesus endured the agonizing death and refused any efforts to even minimize his pain. He wanted to ensure that his obedience Carefully now, listen to what I'm saying. He wanted to be sure that his obedience was acceptable to the Father. That's what was most important in this mission. This is where all the mission came down was to this moment right here. Jesus then also suffers the temptation in humiliating mockery. He suffers humiliating mockery with the temptation that he would exalt himself. That was the point of temptation here. In verse 38, if you look, if you see this, we're beyond the physical torture of the crucifixion is the mockery that our Lord endures, but the restraint that he displays in the face of such ridicule ought to amaze us. 
I want us to appreciate this level of self-control because the Lord knows that not a single, I mean, none of us could endure something like this. We're too prideful. But Jesus demonstrates amazing fortitude here in enduring such mockery, and yet he never once tries to prove himself. He never once tries to prove he is the Son of God. It's utterly astounding. Do you remember when, um, you remember when Jesus was being arrested? And, of course, Peter decides to take matters in his own hand. You may remember Peter grabs a sword and he cuts off Malthus's ear, one of the servants of the high priest. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53? He says, do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000, by the way. Do you think that, that I, mean, I guess you could say, I'm really looking at Peter, do you really think I need your help? <laughs> You know, it's overwhelming how much Jesus let himself be abused in this moment, and he re- yet he resisted the temptation of proving himself, of exalting himself. But, and, I mean, Jesus could have shut the mouths of every one of his antagonists with the, by blinding them with the light of his radiant glory, but he didn't do that. Matthew instead introduces to us three groups of mocking antagonists. There were those who were the passerbys. Did you notice that? There were those who, uh, in verse 39, who were just passing by. Because when the crucifixions happened, they happened on the main road going in and out of the city. So that even as people would go by, they could see those who were being crucified. And they would even share and even pile on the taunts or the mockeries of those who were surrounding them. Especially those who were the Roman soldiers. And then, not only do you have the passerbys, but then you have the chief priest, and then you have the scribes. And then, to make things even worse, you've got the very two criminals that are on either side of him, and even they, on the verge of their own death, are now making fun of them. And of course, Luke's gospel tells us that one of them eventually does come to faith. But you have a scene here where everyone is involved in the attack and the mockery of Jesus' identity. But what is so ironic about Matthew's gospel and what they all had in common is the, is the, the irony of this and the masterful work of the Spirit's inspiration of Matthew's gospel is that every bit of the mockery that they taunted Jesus with was actually true. The Roman soldiers made fun of him and calling him the king of the Jews. He was. They made fun of him, mocked him as calling himself the son of God. He was. And they hung a sign over his head saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why? Because he was being crucified as a Roman insurrectionist. He was being crucified as someone who dared make any kind of claim that he was a king. And yet he was. Jesus was essentially charged and crucified, being called basically a messianic pretender. And yet he was the least pretentious of all. The priest, Pilate, the soldiers, the bystanders, They had no idea that in all that mockery, 
in an unwitting way, they were actually declaring Jesus' true identity. The soldiers mocked him as a king. It's amazing to me, even the passerby said, look, you know, hey, hey, here's the guy that was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, you know, if you're so powerful, then why don't you just save yourself? And then they really, they really, you know, kind of like uh, somebody being stabbed and just kind of twisting a knife. I mean, they, they really drove in the temptation by asking this in the second half of verse 40. They said, if you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. If you really are who you say you are, then stop the agony, stop the humiliation, stop what you're enduring, prove it to us, come down from the cross, and we'll believe. And of course, if we've known anything about the characters that we have seen and those who have opposed Jesus, we would know that probably the last thing that they would do is ever to believe. I mean, for crying out loud, Jesus rose from the grave, and they paid off the guards to actually fabricate a story. But you know, that temptation has a very familiar sound to it, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God. You see, those who mocked Jesus were nothing more than the instrument of the evil one. The devil himself has, throughout Jesus' ministry, tried to sabotage his mission. The devil knows, and this is what's important for us, the devil knows that if the son is successful, his days are numbered. His days are finished. And Matthew intends for us to see this really as a repeat of the temptations that Jesus experienced back in Matthew chapter 4. You remember when Jesus left and went to the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism, Jesus there encountered temptations by the evil one. And once again, the devil is trying to get Jesus to do something. He's trying to get Jesus to prove himself, prove your identity, prove who you really are. But the way that he wants him to prove that is by centering the glory away from God onto, his, onto himself so that he will then do exactly what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. What Jesus did not do is he did not consider equality with God something to just be taken for himself or taken to his own advantage. Instead, his glory was something to be earned through his obedience in death. The devil tempts Jesus when he's in the wilderness. Uh, you know, if you're hungry, then just turn these stones and make them bread. Stop, the, stop this feeling of hunger. I mean, if you're the son of God, then just turn these stones to bread. You can stop your hunger. And then once again, the temptations of Satan show up when Jesus is on the cross. Says, well, if you're the son of God, then just come down from the cross and stop your suffering. If you're the, Satan tempts him in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. To, and let's just see if the angels of God really rescue you like the Bible says. And then we hear these taunts again by those who are uh, mocking him in front of the cross. If you are the Son of God, then save yourself. You see, they, they're taunting Jesus so that they will... They taunt him in a way where he is being tempted to exalt himself before his mission is complete because the devil knows that all it would take is one time for Jesus to cry out, don't you know who I am? 
If Jesus had said that in the beginning of his ministry, throughout his ministry, and even these final hours on the cross, if he'd ever jumped out and and said, how dare you, don't you know who I am, then the entire mission of the cross would be over, and we would all be forever subjected to damnation because of our sin. We would be people without hope. They said they would have believed he was the son of God if he'd come down from the cross. But what's amazing and what Matthew is trying to show us is that we believe he was the son of God because he stayed on the cross. We have to to consider the weight of temptation that our Lord suffered. Here was our Lord who could call legions of angels at any time. Here was the very Son of God that enjoyed inter-Trinitarian communion with the Father. He had never once known anything but close communion and fellowship with the Father. And all of a sudden now, he is being taunted by people who are serving as nothing more than pawns and instruments of Satan to just say, well, why don't you just prove yourself? Because Satan knew that if Jesus ever even once barely tried to prove something about himself, the entire mission was over. The real suffering of Jesus is not just that he suffered physically, but he suffered his entire life with the temptations from Satan to prove himself and trying to derail the mission of God. The writer of Hebrews offers us a great word of encouragement when we're faced with temptations. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, (laughs) but one has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You know, we don't need to let Satan for a second ever to try to convince us that our Lord Jesus doesn't understand the pains and the depth of temptation. Some of us struggle with temptations. We struggle with addictions. And maybe it's internet addictions. Maybe it's entertainment addictions. Maybe it's pornography addictions. Or maybe it's alcohol addictions or drug addictions. Or maybe it's even shopping addictions. I mean, there's all kinds of, of things that we may struggle with. There's other things that we struggle with, whether it's, you know, gossiping or, or, or whatever it may be. But, the, but the, the glorious challenge that the writer of Hebrews provides for us is to remember the temptations and the sufferings of Christ who never failed. And at the same time, that is why we can come to him and we can expect rescue and help and sympathy and grace in the moments where we need it the most because we have a high priest who understands what it means to be tempted in every way and yet never without, and yet never sin. And then we get to verses 45 through 54, and we get the identity where Matthew wants us to help us to see that he truly is God's son. You know, the depth of Jesus' humiliation and servitude for our wretched souls is overwhelming. What Jesus spoke about the very night before the last, you know, the last Passover came true. When he held up the cup of wine, he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
That forgiveness of sins was only possible because of the obedience of God's Son. He's not just the Son of God by nature, but He proves His Sonship through His obedience in the face of this horrifying humiliation, temptation, torture, and the provoking of His enemies. And what happens next is perhaps, I think, probably the hardest scene in the entire Bible. It's a scene of absolute horror and grace at the same time. It's a scene of mercy and horrible judgment at the same time. Matthew tells us in verse 45 that about noon, darkness fell over the land. Isaiah prophesied about this moment. Because we need to understand why everything became dark. But let's first back up and remember what Isaiah prophesied about the servant, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging or by his wounds, we are healed But what is interesting is when you get to verse 10 and the first part of verse 10 of Isaiah 53 is that we learn that it's not just speaking about the suffering that Jesus faced in the hands of wicked human beings, but also what he faced as the result of God himself. Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord himself was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. It's interesting the, New King, the King James Version uses the word bruised, but most English Bibles say that he was crushed. The word crushed there is literally could be translated, he was beaten to pieces. I want you to just, to, to just think with me for just a moment and reflect on this. The father was willing to crush the son because it was the only way to save humanity. But here's the even, the even further astounding part about it. What I think Matthew wants us to see is Jesus was willing to go that far. In about the sixth hour, it was the middle of the day, and darkness had overtaken the land. A thick sky of darkness and and a a thick darkness had encompassed the entire land. And when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, usually when darkness was there, whether it's darkness that was over the land of Egypt or darkness that God prophesied through through the latter prophets, the darkness itself, even as Amos would speak about, was a darkness of God's judgment. The Lord had brought, was indicating that judgment now was inevitable, and judgment was in process. But it was not judging the people who were the mockers or judging the people who were taunting him or judging the Roman soldiers. The ones who were facing the judgment or the one facing the judgment was his own son that Isaiah tells us the father decided it was pleasing to crush him because it was the only way humanity would ever have a chance at salvation. 
It was a horrifying moment. It was the moment, though, that we also see grace in this because at the moment when the sky turned black and the separation of fellowship between the Father and the Son, when, when that separation in their fellowship occurred, when that happened, what we do know is at that moment, the Father accepted the obedience of the Son. The darkness indicated something, that at that moment, all of our iniquities were laid on the sun. And that's why everything was darkened. It indicated the separation of the fellowship that that the son and the father had always enjoyed. This is what Jesus was agonizing about in the garden. The Son in all eternity had never known anything but intimate fellowship and relationship with the Father. And now all of a sudden, He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is why Jesus recites the opening of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time that he felt absolutely abandoned by the Father. The Son had never experienced that in all eternity. He became cursed. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We are the ones that deserve the death. In Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah reminds us that all of us, we're the ones that are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul explains that the Father in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you think about the depth of suffering, the level of suffering, when you think about everything Jesus endured here, when you think about even the fact that he turned away narcotics and wine and all those things to willingly go with his full wits, his full faculties, his full senses to this agonizing death, you understand why the son is exalted because he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus cries out, Matthew says, and we learn from John that Jesus says, it is finished. And it marks the moment that Jesus understands, pay attention, Jesus understands when he cries out, it is finished. He's not talking about his death necessarily. The finishing work that Jesus is talking about is the moment where he knows his obedience is accepted. The Father accepted the unblemished sacrifice of Christ, his sacrificial obedience. And then in Matthew 
gospel, in Matthew's gospel, in verse 50 here, he then tells us that in verse 50, Jesus yielded up his spirit. You know what's amazing about that? None of the gospel writers ever described Jesus' death in a typical way of describing death. What they, always, what they always account for us here is that Jesus chose the point in time when he died. <laughs> Jesus is the one that did say earlier that he is the one who has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. Jesus laid down his life at the moment he knew that the Father accepted the obedience of his sacrifice. Jesus died the very moment he knew that the sins of his people were laid upon him. And what happened next is rather interesting. Matthew tells us that a whole series of phenomenon began to happen all around him. <laughs> when Jesus yielded up his spirit, when he, when he breathed his final breath, yielded up his spirit to God, Matthew tells us that there was phenomenon that began to happen. I mean, all of a sudden there were you know, there was an earthquake that happened and the 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 veil of the temple, we don't know if that was the the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place or from the outer court of the holy place. But either way, the symbol was extremely clear. God separated. He destroyed or rent the curtain that separated fellowship between him and humanity. Rocks were split because of this earthquake that was going on. Tombs and the, the stones that were in front of tombs and covering them all of a sudden were rolling and they're being crushed and they're falling. And, and later on, Matthew says, even afterwards, I mean, Matthew kind of breaks from the chronology here. It even talks about after the resurrection of Jesus that there were even saints that resurrected and appeared to people. Why? As a testimony to be able to confirm the validity of Jesus' death and resurrection. But all of this stuff is going on. All this is happening. And you have to ask the question, what in the world for? What is all this about? Well, it's interesting because all of this has Old Testament origins. And there's really three passages in view. I'm going to mention them to you. You can write them down and you can study them at your own time frame. But the first one is Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. The second one is in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And the last one is in Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. You may remember that in Exodus, chapter 19, when the Israelites had come from Egypt and then that God brought them, Moses led them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And when they got to the foot of Mount Sinai, there they saw a theophany. There they experienced the presence of God. And, of course, God had wrapped himself in a cloud to shield his glory from those who were there. But when God descended from the mountain and the people were gathered there, Moses says to us that there was like lightning and fire and there was an earthquake all around and the people themselves were terrified at the sight. But what is interesting there is that it was at that moment, at that mountain there, is where they were being declared the people of God. It was at that mountain where they would be given the law of God. They were, it was there that they were receiving the covenant, forming covenant relationship with God. Because in the very next chapter, in chapter 20, all through 24, is the giving of the law of God that distinguishes them as the people of God. 
And then in Haggai chapter 2, it was that period of time where after the exile, where the, where the Israelites or the Judeans had been in Babylon and they returned back to, uh, back, to, back to Judea, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they're all upset because the new temple that they're building looks very pathetic compared to the one that Solomon had constructed years before. But the book of Haggai, prophet Haggai says this in Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also in the dry land. I'm going to shake all the nations and they're going to come with the wealth of nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the later glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. God is using Haggai along with the witness of all the prophets who were before him, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and of course Micah and many others, using the message of these prophets to be able to understand that there's a later glory that is coming, a later work that is coming by God that is new, speaking about the new covenant, that a day in which God is going to shake everything loose. He is going to destroy everything that is temporal, everything that is collapsible in the previous order to permanently establish everything in the new covenant order that he is bringing in. And the writer of Hebrews sums all of this up for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 reminds us that as new covenant worshipers, we don't come to Mount Zion where we shriek back in fear because we don't have access to God. In fact, we do have access to God. We have access to God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, the writer of Hebrews says, See to it, you do not refuse him who is speaking, because if those who did not escape when they refused to him who warned them on earth, talking about the prophets, how much less will we escape if we turn away him who warns from heaven, speaking of Jesus. And his voice shook the earth then, remember at Mount Sinai, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven there from Haggai. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is he saying? You know, when, when all this phenomenon begins to happen, when the, when the phenomenon of creation is violently being quaked and, and rocks are being split and temple veils are being torn and grave sites are being opened up and all this is happening, it is God's undoing of everything in the old order. God is highlighting not, I mean, earlier we saw that the entire sky turned black. Why? Because God accepted the obedience of the Son. But now we're seeing this result as of his death to show us now the Father not only accepted his obedience, but the Father has also accepted his death. And that it is this death that ushers in new creation, new covenant, new temple, new access to God, a new theophany, not at Mount Sinai, not anywhere else except now at the theophany of the presence of Christ himself. 
God is using all this phenomenon. Matthew is pointing this out to us to help us understand. God accepted the son's obedience. God accepted the son's sacrifice. And it is because of that death we can live. And when you get to verse 54, you see the climax of the whole section. You want to talk about the proof that this is the new covenant? Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they were scared. And they said this, truly this was the Son of God. The Roman centurion and the soldiers began to have doubts about their doubts. You know, put yourself in their position for just a moment. Here, they, they were part of the taunting. They were part of the mockery. They were the ones who were uh, ridiculing Jesus as well. And they've heard everyone around them. They've heard the others talking about, oh, you said you're the son of God. And, you know, you can't save yourself. Oh, you saved others. You can't save yourself. Oh, if you're the son of God, then just come down from the cross. Yeah, they're hearing all this in the background. And all of a sudden, all this phenomenon, Matthew says, begins to happen. And they realize we made a mistake. And isn't it just like the Lord to make the first convert a Gentile and a Roman centurion? And that all the religious leaders who taunted him, the high priest who couldn't figure it out, Herod the king who tried to destroy him who was a son of God, while all those who were ambiguous and couldn't figure out who he was, Matthew gets us to the end of this crucifixion and said, you know what? His identity cannot be mistaken. He truly is the Son of God. As I reflected on this, I confess to you, I had never thought about Jesus' obedience in the way that I have tried to explain to you this morning. And I even fear that I've done a poor job at that because none of us can understand the depth of Jesus' temptations. Again, you know, we, we, we tend to focus on the cross and the physical suffering that he endured, and, and rightly so. But Jesus throughout his entire life was assailed with the, with the temptations by the evil one to give up. And what Matthew wants us to be able to understand is that he, all those temptations came upon him because he is the Son of God. But it was because he's the Son of God is the only reason why he was able to prevail. That is why there is no other Savior. That is why there is no other sacrifice. That is why there is no other way of salvation except belief on the Son. And that is why it frustrates me anytime who someone ever dares to undermine the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because it is nothing less than Him who is fully God and fully man who could accomplish a salvation like this. When those rocks split and when that earth broke and when their temple veil tore, the Lord was saying that everything that was old, He has shaken loose so that He may establish the things that are permanent. And the permanency is in His Son. He is the true temple. He is 
the great high priest. He is the final sacrificial lamb. He is the final son of David. He is the son of man who will reign in glory. He is the son of God who dwells in unique fellowship with the Lord. And my prayer this morning on this Palm Sunday is as we reflect on the sacrificial death of Christ, may we be reminded now and understand why Paul says that he is highly exalted because of his obedient obedience to death, even death on the cross. And because of his humiliation, the Lord has qualified him for worship and exaltation. So, Father, thank you for our brother Matthew. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's work of inspiring our brother to record this for us, to write this for us, Lord, so that we understand the depth of the sacrifice that your son made and how, Lord, we are saved by his obedient death. Father, thank you for Jesus being willing to endure such agony, such suffering, such temptation for sinners like us. God, may we contemplate His sacrifice. And Lord, may we also remember the depth of our own iniquity so we remember, Lord, the greatness of His sacrifice. Father, I pray that His sacrifice will also be the occasion, Lord, where we will indeed repent of sin. Search our hearts. Search every wayward way within us. Sanctify us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord, that our lives may be one that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices of praises to you, proving the will of God is perfect. Lord, we love you. We are grateful to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willing obedience. And we indeed glorify your name to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, I, uh, I guess just want to close out this morning with uh, a few announcements. I, listen, I, I hope uh, some of you, several of you have, have commented and complimented the uh, quality improvement on things such as the sound quality and the live streaming and things, and uh, thank you. I, I am grateful to so many that have worked so hard in improving this, and so uh, it's painful to still have to, to have to assemble and to meet like this, but um, we are grateful that God has ordained these means and has provided, uh, provided this for us. I just want to re- remind you quickly uh, that there are still Bible studies that are going on. They are, um, our women are still meeting on Thursdays. Um, there, uh, the Friday morning men's Bible study, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, the Friday morning men's Bible study is meeting on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. Um, did learn this past Friday. I'm not sure how much we can call that just a men's study. Uh, there were just as many women logged into that and people from all over the place. But look, that, we love it. Uh, we're, you know, look, you know, one of the things that my wife and I have been talking about is uh, how it's amazing that even though we don't like the formats and how things are going on right now, the Word of God is going out more right now than it ever has in human history. I mean, now, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad churches putting out their messages too, but, uh, but the truth is the gospel is getting out 
And we're grateful for that. And to see people that are logging in from all over the place, outside of even Valdosta, to come and be able to, um, to view our services and hear the message preached and the teaching of the Word, we're grateful for that. Grateful for that God is using this. And we, and we do need to keep praying that God will use this uh, for His glory and, uh, and for saving lives uh, through faith in Christ. I do want to make mention that on Good Friday... We are going to have a live stream on Friday evening at 6 p.m., and it will be a reflection on the Passover meal, the last Passover, the first new covenant meal of the Lord Jesus with His disciples. And so, come together, uh, tune back in, I guess. I don't know what's the right thing to say. You know, same, you know, uh, tune in, live stream in, whatever, log in, whatever those things may be. But but, uh, please join us. on our church's website, on the live stream on Friday, Good Friday at 6 p.m. Obviously, we had planned something as a church. We had planned to actually share a Lord's Supper meal together on that night, but obviously circumstances have prohibited that. But we don't want to give up the opportunity to still reflect on Good Friday, on the sacrifice of Christ, as well as that meal that He shared with His disciples. And I think that, and our prayer is, that through our reflection of that and our teaching on that, that it will give us even greater anticipation. And when we come back to Together of sharing this meal together. I can promise you this, uh, that when we come back together, the first Sunday that we're all back together and assembling together, we're celebrating the Lord's table together. Uh, that is something that we are committed to doing uh, because we understand the sanctity of that meal, what it means for our body, and uh, we are looking forward to being able to share that together, but we don't want to miss the opportunity still to reflect on that this week. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.